0: Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for for the Sabbath and for the privilege of uh, gathering together even though it's uh, on the on the internet, we're not actually together in person. We will be tomorrow, but we are together uh, in in cyberspace uh, and we we know that you are with us no matter where we are. And we pray for your holy spirit to be with us, please Father. Uh, give us a, a rich Sabbath blessing and help us As we look at your word, bring us closer to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, um, I want to welcome everybody. And uh, by faith, I know you're out there, even though I can't see you. Uh, And Luke asked me just to give a little bit of background on myself. I don't know how many of you are aware of our ministry, White Horse Media. Um, My background is California. Uh, This has been uh, I guess kind of bittersweet to be back here. Uh, I grew up in California, grew up in Los Angeles, I grew up in the Hollywood Hills. Didn't grow up an Adventist. Uh, in a, I grew up in a very secular Jewish home, and when I was 20 years old, I started reading the Bible for the first time. And it's a long story, but I eventually uh, watched it is written on television one time. Learned about the Sabbath. Uh, found an Adventist church. The pastor handed me a copy of the book The Desire of Ages. Uh, I read that book in a, in a dormitory room at Cal State Northridge, my third year of college, and uh, my whole life completely changed after reading that book. Gave my heart to Jesus, got on my knees, accepted him as my Messiah and as my Savior, and I have uh, not been the same since. Um, as I mentioned, bittersweet, my mother uh, used to live just uh, east of here in Palm Springs. She died a couple years ago. My, my dad uh, in Glendale uh, just west of here he died a couple years ago and uh, I still have a few I have two sisters that live in Los Angeles my brother's in uh, Indiana uh, anyway a lot of memories um, being back here in California I've certainly enjoyed the warm weather for a couple days today was very nice I'm coming to you from priest River idaho where uh, I understand we had about two inches of snow last night so we're in the in the dead of winter still and uh, my wife lives there, up where we live, and my uh, 13-year-old daughter, Abby, and our 16-year-old son, Seth, and we have a ministry, Whitehorse Media. We have a great team of people that we work with, and the Lord has just blessed us. Uh, even in, during this coronavirus pandemic, we've been doing a lot of programs. We have a, a pretty frequented YouTube channel that gets a lot of action. We just did a program just uh, a couple days ago on Revelation 17 that is there now on our YouTube channel. and. Uh, our website is whitehorsemedia.com for those that would like to get more familiar with us. And uh, anyway, I've decided to do a uh, four-part series on Revelation chapter 17. 17 is uh, a chapter that is very mysterious. Um, for 41 years, I've been studying Bible prophecy. I've been uh, very uh, captivated by the sure word of prophecy, and that's really been my, my focus Uh, I've written a lot of books on this. I give seminars on the topic, and Revelation 17 has really gripped my attention. And hopefully I can get, uh, I can maybe share the screen here and put up some pictures, and hopefully you'll be able to see this. Let's see if this will work. First slide. Oops. Oops. Click share. There we go. Okay, Revelation chapter 17. Um, the book of Revelation is my favorite book in the Bible. I've, I've read it many, many times, and uh, chapter 17 has recently really captured my attention, and I've written a book on, on this topic. And there you see the picture on the screen called The Bloody Woman and the Seven-Headed Beast. Quite a dramatic title. We actually um, found this lady that's there on the cover and she came into our studio and our uh, producer and our designer uh, photographed her for a photo shoot and put that cover together. And uh, she's just, uh, she reflects the kind of imagery that is in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, I've been studying this chapter for intensely for about two years. Uh, it's been uh, quite a journey for me as I've gone up and down, in and out, and all around trying to figure out the deep mysteries that are in that chapter. It talks a lot about uh, the woman, the bloody woman. It talks about uh, the beast with seven heads and ten horns. It talks about seven kings, five are fallen, one is and the other is not yet come. And then it talks about ten horns that eventually make war on the lamb. And uh, it also talks about God's final people who are faithful to Jesus, which is what I, I want to be. That's the goal of my life is to be faithful to the Lord. And so anyway, uh, I have been wrestling with this chapter for a long time. And it took me quite a while to feel like I had enough of a handle on it in order to, to go public. Uh, I, don't, I certainly don't want to write a book and put my name on it and send it out. Uh, if it's going to, you know, be wrong. I don't want to uh, create a lot of controversy. I want to teach the truth. I want to teach the Bible. I want the book to be a blessing. And my, my habit is not to preach or teach or write about things that I don't have uh, certainty that this is really what the Bible says. And so finally, after many, many months of looking at these different things from different angles and running into roadblocks and then having those roadblocks removed and then finally connecting all the dots and and praying and praying and praying throughout this whole time that God would help me to put the pieces together, uh, I finally went public with this book. So what we're going to do this weekend is I'm going to walk you through uh, what this chapter is all about. And I'll have a lot of copies of of my book uh, tomorrow uh, after sundown. We'll make these available. They're very inexpensive, a couple dollars. And and the book basically goes through every single verse in Revelation chapter 17. So for part one, here we are Friday night, uh, live from the Hampton Inn, from my my little hotel room, Uh, we're going to talk about identifying the bloody woman. Who is this woman? So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up God's book and let's just go through this. Uh, Revelation 17, verse 1. And, and let me say that there's a lot of different interpretations of this, uh, this chapter. I'm well aware of that. I've read nine different interpretations. Mm-hmm. And one particular book had nine different interpretations of the seven kings, the seven heads. And so there's a lot of views within the Adventist church and, and other churches. And so we'll do our best to go through this, and I'll share what I believe are some insights that God has given me. And uh, I'm, I'm not just to let you know, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself to be a speculator. I, I try not to uh, focus on you know, being original or anything like that. Uh, my goal is to understand the Bible and to teach what, what God says so that the focus is not on me, it's not on man, but it's on Jesus and on his word. That's what's most important. So let's start with verse one. Revelation 17, 1. John wrote this. He said, there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials. And he talked with me. Now we can just stop right there. Uh, This is very important that the context of Revelation 17 is one of the angels, one of the seven angels who has the seven vials. And these are the vials of the wrath of God. These are the seven last plagues that fall upon those who get the mark of the beast, which is described in chapter 16. The seven last plagues fall in chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, uh, John goes into how one of the seven angels who had those plagues came over to him and talked with him in a vision. And this also tells us that the context of this chapter is down near the end of time, This is an end of time chapter. This is a uh, revelation from one of the seven last plague angels. And I'll build my case that the context of this chapter is not the first century. It's not when John wrote the book. He's actually taken far into the future to the time uh, before the seven last plagues. So that's very important. There came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials and he talked with me and he said to me, Can you imagine uh, one of the seven angels walking up to you and having a conversation with you? That's what happened to John. He talked with me, this angel. And then he said to me, come here. Now, this is important that uh, the angel didn't go back to where John was. He came over to John and he said, come here to where I am. And he is down near the end. Again, he's one of the seven last plague angels. So he said, come here to where I am, and I will show to you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Uh, as I pondered this, it has impressed me that what this chapter is dealing with is, is, a, is a great whore. And she's not a little whore. She's not, uh, you know, a small minor player when it comes to prophecy. And she is the great whore, which is a, a harlot, a prostitute, who seduces. She's a seducer. And, and the angel said, I will show you the judgment of the great whore. There's a judgment that is actually starting to come upon her in this chapter and will continue and finally drop on her when the seven last plagues fall. And it says that she is she's sitting upon many waters, now, we know what the waters represent by looking at verse 15. In verse, verse 15, the angel said to John, he says to me, the waters which you saw, where the whore sits, are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the waters, the waters uh, are, is the symbol, and the application <clears throat> is multitudes and nations and different languages of people. Now, this is a principle that I'm going to share in a little bit more uh, that I have, uh, that I have con- concluded from reading this chapter, and that I call it the symbol, the symbol to literal principle. And the principle is this, that when we have a symbol, and then we have an angel or a prophet explaining the symbol, uh, they do so with a literal application. And we see that in this text, verse 15, that the waters, which was the symbol, where you saw where the, horse, where the horse sits, are people, multitudes, and nations, and times. And, and this tells us that this great whore <clears throat> is a woman of global influence. Now, I've concluded uh, in my study, I have another principle, which I call the weight of evidence principle, that the way to identify this woman and the way to identify the beast and the seven heads and the 10 horns, as we work our way through, <clears throat> is by looking at what I call the weight of evidence not just one piece of the puzzle, but we need to look at all the different pieces. And in the light of the, the weight of evidence, we can come to a conclusion about who this, who this is. So uh, just to start out with, as we start looking at the clues, and I'm gonna put a lot of clues on, the, on my slide here that I think are very compelling. Uh, there's a lot of different views about this woman. If you, I was on YouTube earlier today And I I looked at the number of different views, and and there are different views, but I've concluded that when we look at all the clues, just straight on, then the evidence uh, comes together very, very clearly. So we have a great whore that sits upon many waters. And then it says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Now, this tells us that this woman, this great whore, has been involved with kings, She's involved with with royalty. Uh, She is described as committing fornication with kings, which means that she has uh, spiritually gone to bed with kings and has connected with them to the extent that the kings support the woman. That's the fornication that she's been involved in. And then it also says that the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So this is talking about the people of the earth, all the people of the world, or at least a large percentage of them have become drunk with the wine. And the wine refers to her false teachings, her false doctrines, which she has given to the world uh, as a result of of her fornication. So we're not dealing with a minor prophecy here. We're dealing with a great whore with worldwide influence who's involved with kings and who is uh, making the people of the earth drunk. Then in verse three, this is very significant. Verse three says, so he carried me away. And the word away tells me again, that this, the context of this chapter is not John's day. The angel says, come here uh, and I'm gonna show you the judgment upon the great whore. And then verse three, John says, he carried me away. And that word away indicates that he's carried away from his own time, from the from the first century. And he's brought down the stream of time, and he's carried away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now, this is significant. The wilderness, uh, that word wilderness is used. And let me see if I've got a slide on that. Oh, not yet. Uh, the word wilderness is used. Three times in Revelation, once here in chapter 17, and twice in Revelation chapter 12. And what happens in chapter 12 is there's a pure woman who flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days, for three and a half years or 42 months, and she is uh, in the wilderness in hiding because she's being persecuted by, uh, by the dragon. And this tells us that the wilderness represents a state when you're, when you're down. The the woman in chapter 12 is the pure woman, and she was down, and the dragon was on top. But what happens in chapter 17 is that John is taken away in the spirit into the wilderness, and he sees a woman who is under partial judgment, because that's what the first verse says. Come here, and I will show you the judgment. So the judgment of God has already begun to fall upon this woman. She's in the wilderness. She's down but she's not out, she's not completely out because as we keep reading the chapter, uh, her power is gonna come back in the final in the final days, which we'll talk about uh, later. So he carried me way in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman. And she was sitting upon a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. So she has a distinct, color characteristics, purple and scarlet, which are actually the color of, uh, of royal, it's a royalty color. And, and this tells us something fascinating that this woman, uh, so there's a lot involved in this, but in chapter two and three of Revelation, Jesus gives a history of, of his church. There's Ephesus, Smyrna, and going down through the churches. And the first church is Ephesus, uh, going back to, to John's day. Uh, And the church was largely a pure church, but problems were starting to come in. And in in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, let me see if I can find this here. Revelation chapter 2, verse uh, verse 4 and 5, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have someone against you because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. So in the early church, there were some that left their first love for Jesus, and they, uh, they fell. They were falling. And I've, I've concluded that what happened in the, in the history of the, of the early church was that many within the church, there was a stream within Christianity that left Jesus, the lover, the bridegroom, and they gave up the white garments of righteousness, and they were enticed by the world and they began to fall and to move toward uh, the kings. Instead of the king of kings, they went to the kings of the earth and they began to fornicate with the kings of the earth. And, and a part of the church began to, uh, they it left its lover and went after uh, illicit relationships with, with the kings. And so this woman, instead of being clothed with, with white, She is now clothed with purple and scarlet, which represents her departure from her her God and her king and her apostasy. And there's a big lesson for all of us in that, that we need to be careful that we don't give up the the purity of the white robes of Jesus Christ's righteousness uh, and, and be enticed by the ways of the world. And that's what happened to this woman. So she is clothed with purple and scarlet. And then she's also very wealthy. She is decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. She's fabulously wealthy. The, the world's glitter has attracted her instead of the righteousness of Christ. And then it says she has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her, her fornication. And then verse 5 says, upon her forehead was a name written. She has a mysterious name right on her head. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And the fact that she is a mother indicates that she has that she's had daughters. That daughters, uh, harlot daughters have come out of her, which really places the, the reference point of this vision far beyond John's day. It's actually post-Reformation, even beyond the time of the Reformation, when the, uh, when the churches came out of the Roman Catholic Church. But as time has gone on, many of them have drifted back toward the mother. And by the t- when John sees this vision, she is a mother at this point, and she has daughters at this point. And in verse six, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Uh, and this is why I've, I picked the title, The Bloody Woman and the Seven-Headed Beast, is because uh, this woman is drunk on blood. She's kind of like a vampire. She has uh, She has persecuted in history, and she has murdered millions and millions of the people of God. And John says, when I saw her, I wondered uh, with great amazement, uh, great amazement when he saw this woman. Now, if you go down to verse nine, verse nine is very interesting. Verse nine says, here is the mind that has wisdom, the seven heads, and here I see the symbol to literal principle again, just like verse 15, the waters is the symbol and it represents the people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So in verse nine, the seven heads of the beast are the symbol. And then it says, the seven heads are, there's the application, the literal application, are seven mountains on which the woman, the woman sits. So these are all clues that we can put together one by one. Now, there's uh, a number of other clues. And we know from, ver- from Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and from chapter 18, verse 2, that this is a fallen woman. Uh, it, the Bible says that Babylon, the great, has fallen, is fallen. So this is a woman that was originally upright, but then she, she fell, and she has fallen away from God. And where she sits, uh, finally, is on the uh, seven mountains. Now, back to the seven mountains. Uh, I looked the word up in the Strong's Concordance, and the word mountains can also mean hills. And it's a fact that Rome is famous as the city of seven hills. Now, here's one more clue about her. It's in chapter 18, verse four. Not only is this a fallen woman, but chapter 18, verse four says, I heard another voice from heaven. And the voice said, come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. And this tells us something very important that inside of this woman are the people of God. God has people inside of her that he still recognizes as his children, his, his people that are doing the best they can. That they don't, they don't, they're in the wrong place, but they're the right people. They're sincere. They're godly. They're earnest. They, they love the Lord to the best of their capability and God recognizes them as his people. Now, um, There's various views, as I mentioned, about who this woman is. Uh, One of the most popular views is that this woman represents the imperial Roman Empire in the time of John, the pagan Roman Empire, which collapsed in 476 AD. Um, That's a common view. Another view is that this woman actually represents Jerusalem. Uh, If you go back to Ezekiel 16, it talks about how Jerusalem went away from God and became a harlot so some people think it's uh, old Jerusalem some people think it's old the old Roman Empire but here's the reason why I don't think either one of those theories are are valid Uh, number one is because this woman commits fornication with with kings and if if it was the pagan Roman Empire that doesn't fit because the pagan Roman Empire didn't fornicate with kings They, they were led by kings the Caesars that was their Their job was to to govern and to rule. So there's no fornication. There's no illicit relationships going on between uh, the Roman Empire and its its Caesars. Another reason is because uh, this chapter takes us down to the end of time, where the angel who gave this uh, revelation is one of the seven last plague angels. Another reason is because this woman has fallen, And the Roman Empire could never be uh, considered fallen because it wasn't upright uh, in in the first place. A fall has to do with with an apostasy within a church, just like 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Paul talks about a falling away would take place. And we see that again in uh, Revelation chapter 2, where, where people within the church of Ephesus had fallen. They had begun a process of falling away from God. And the last reason is because the Bible says that God's people are inside of her and, and they need to come out. And <clears throat> that doesn't apply to the Roman Empire. Doesn't apply to Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem back in John's day, because, you know, God didn't call his people literally to leave one location and then to go to another uh, location in, in, in a physical sense. Not like um, you know, people couldn't leave the Roman Empire where they're going to go. The Roman Empire ruled the world. So when you put the pieces together, it just doesn't fit. And I've concluded from my study that there's really only one organization that fits every single clue of this chapter. And if you look at them one by one, uh, point by point, I may not be politically correct today, um, but these are facts. This is what the Bible says. When you put all the pieces together, it's very clear that there's only one organization that fits every single one of these clues And that is the Roman Catholic Church uh, organization centered in in Rome on the city of Seven Hills uh, in the Vatican. And and I know that's a hard truth for many people to swallow. But I think the blow can be somewhat softened by Revelation 18.4 when it says, come out of her, my people. Because that tells us that even though the Roman Catholic Church is a fallen organization, God still has true people inside of her that he considers to be his own, his precious precious people that he wants to eventually call them out. He's calling them out. Now, let's just go through some quick slides here, and we'll see if all the pieces fit together. Here's a picture. as a sort of a collage uh, showing the global influence of Pope Francis. Uh, there, uh, one part on the left, he's sitting with uh, leaders of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, he's also down below that, speaking in front of the United Nations. Above, uh, he met with President uh, Trump when Trump was president. And there he is in the middle. He's, he was picked by Time Magazine as the man of the year. Uh, on the right, you see him uh, meeting with Muslim leaders and then Jewish leaders and also evangelical leaders. Uh, so there's no question that the Roman Catholic Church, and especially Pope Francis, has worldwide influence, which is what the Bible says about the woman, worldwide influence. As far as involvement with kings, there's a, a book on the right that shows the relationship between popes and kings, and it's been an intimate relationship, sometimes a hostile relationship, but many times a cooperative relationship. Uh, down throughout European history, Uh, the Roman church has put pressure on kings to legislate and to support the church and to go against heretics. And there's really no other church that has, has, you can see in the history, has had that kind of involvement with the kings of the earth. As far as the colors, purple and scarlet, there you can see right there, These are the very colors of the Roman Catholic cardinals. Uh, The golden cup, there's Pope Francis holding a golden cup during a high mass. There's a picture of a martyr. You can read Fox's book of martyrs. The evidence is very clear in history that the Roman church certainly did become a persecuting power. Historians tell us 50 to 100 million martyrs were put to death. Uh, The Bible says this woman is literally drunk with the blood of the saints. And today, tonight, she still sits where she has always sat, and that is right there in Rome, right on the city that is famous as the city of Seven Hills. Uh, There was a Roman emperor named Vespasian, and he had coins that were made, and on those coins was a picture of a woman sitting upon a seven-hilled city, which was uh, the city of Rome. Rome is, is famous historically as the city of Of Seven Hills. Now, let me uh, move down to our own day. Um, There's a picture of of our new president, President Joe Biden, becoming the second U.S. Roman Catholic president in in history. The first Roman Catholic president that we've ever had in America was uh, John F. Kennedy. And it's fascinating. I actually Googled this the other day, and I, I was able to find a speech that Kennedy, while he was still a candidate, gave in front of a whole group of ministers in Texas. Because he was Catholic At, at in the 60s, in the 1960s, there was a lot of um, concern among Protestants who still understood Revelation 17. And they were very concerned that, you know, should we have a, a Roman Catholic president? Uh, and so, you know, it bothered them. And Kennedy realized that this, issue had to be addressed or else there was no way that he was gonna he was gonna win the election and so he, he gave a speech in 1960 in Houston before a large crowd of Protestant ministers and I watched that sermon somebody videoed it or whatever kind of camera they had and, and uh, I watched what he said and he said something very significant he said that and that uh, if he became an American president if he was elected When it comes to public policy he would not request or take any instruction from the pope he said that he would be loyal to the constitution that he would uh, be an american president and he would uh, that his religion those uh, preferences that he had were between him and god alone and that he would uh, stand by the constitution which separates church and state and uh, that was the speech that turned the tide and it wasn't long after that that he became president so anyway, Joe Biden is the second uh, Catholic president. And it's not a sin to be a Catholic and the president of the United States. We have laws about this, that a person's religion should not be a test of office. And I, I certainly support that. But I want to just draw your attention to some significant things that are, that are happening. Uh, when, when President Biden was inaugurated on January 20, he picked a, a Jesuit Father Leo O'Connor, to offer the invocation. And when he prayed his prayer, and I listened to it very carefully, uh, Father O'Connor spoke about the common good, and he said that Pope Francis has reminded us how important it is to dream together. He said dreams are built together. So here we have a Catholic president inviting a Jesuit to pray, during his inauguration. And the Jesuit quotes Pope Francis and says, we need to come together. We need to dream together. Um, here's another interesting thing. When President Biden gave his speech after he was inaugurated, he, he said, and this is a quote, he said, many years ago, St. Augustine, a saint of my church, wrote. And then he quoted Augustine. Now, if you know much about history, uh, Augustine St. Augustine was the first Roman Catholic, he lived in North Africa, to develop a systematic theology that legitimatized the religious persecution of heretics. Uh, Biden also said, and, and this is true what he said here, he said, this is a time of testing. We face an attack on democracy and on truth. We will write the next chapter of the American story for God and all of you, I give you my word I will defend the Constitution I will defend America and when I heard that I thought that's good that's good Joe uh, stick with that and you know as, as our new president um, Paul tells us in first Timothy chapter 2 that we should pray for uh, leaders and, and people in government and rulers and all that are in authority and so I pray for uh, President Biden and I hope that he will make good decisions uh, there's Decisions that he's already made that I don't agree with, but I still pray for him, and I hope that God will uh, speak to speak to his heart. Now, here's something else very significant. Okay, well, there's a picture of Father O'Donovan when he offered his convocation, uh, his inauguration prayer. Uh, here's President Biden with Pope Francis. It's no secret that Pope, uh, I mean that uh, President Trump during his presidency, he. Uh, he didn't, he bucked the Pope many times. He didn't go along with the Pope's climate change agenda. He pulled America out of the Paris Agreement. Biden has put us back and Biden is, uh, is going full steam ahead with uh, an agenda, a philosophy, a policy that is very supportive of Pope Francis's encyclical dealing with climate change, which is called Laudato Si' which uh, is Pope Francis's recommendations to the world to, uh, about what the world needs to do in order to combat climate change and solve its, its universal woes. It's interesting that when uh, Pope Francis came to Washington, D.C. in 2015 and spoke before a joint session of Congress, he quoted from his encyclical nine times. And I'll talk more about his encyclical uh, tomorrow but there's many things that are very significant inside that encyclical. And it is very significant that now it seems like the roadblocks are being removed and the Biden presidency is very favorable to um, many of the teachings of Pope, Pope Francis. Another significant thing was uh, after the election, December 19 of last year, Kamala Harris spoke to a climate change meeting where uh, Biden's appointees on climate change were being introduced. And uh, Mrs. Harris said, quoting the Pope, humanity still has the ability to work together in building our common home, which was a quote from Pope, France, Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical, Laudato uh, Si on the care for our common home. So. Here's President Biden has a Jesuit pray and prayed, we need to dream together. And here's uh, his vice president now, uh, quoting also from Pope Francis and quoting from his encyclical. On January 20, both Biden and uh, Vice President Harris put their hands over the Bible, over God's word, and they swore to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And... Now, these issues about America and the Vatican the Catholic Church the Constitution uh, Revelation 17 all these issues are big issues and they have a lot to do with the fulfillment of Bible prophecy uh, Speaker Pelosi, Speaker of the House is also as most of us know she is also a, a Roman Catholic we now have six of our nine United States Supreme Court justices who are also Roman Catholic. And my point in sharing this information is not to, uh, you know, it's not to to sound like a bigot because I, I don't believe I am. I'm a student of prophecy. I, I love people and I, I don't have anything against anybody. I pray for President Biden, I'll pray for Kamala Harris, uh, the Supreme Court justices. And let me make it very clear that uh, Only God knows what individuals are going to do Uh, there. And again, let me state, there's no, it's no sin to be a member of the Roman Catholic church and to be uh, um, an officer or a president or a vice president in the United States government. Uh, The the constitution is very clear that no religious test should uh, be imposed upon a person when it concerns their coming into office. And so, uh, you know, whatever they choose as far as their religion uh, and what they do in the days ahead, nobody knows. We don't know what final decisions they're, they're going to make. But here's my point. My point is that all three branches of the United States government, and that's the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, they all have strong increasingly strong Roman Catholic influence. Uh, And to me, that's very significant in the light of what we see in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, Here's a a recent article. The headline there says, Pope calls for global compact on education based on care for others, peace, justice, goodness, beauty, acceptance, and fraternity. Uh, Pope Francis certainly has... um, a winsome way about him there's no question about that and he is working actively to try to bring the world's leaders together under the umbrella of his own ideas uh, there's no there's no question about that and we need to look at all of this in the light of biblical prophecy now just for the record because i know this is a you know, this, this is a controversial and volatile subject. Uh, and when I first started reading my Bible and studying Bible prophecy, I had no idea where, where it would lead. But I have decided that as a, as a minister and as a teacher of Scripture, that it is my responsibility in the sight of God to faithfully teach what his word says. And so that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing, and I want to make it clear for the record that I'm uh, completely convinced that God loves Roman Catholic people, that he loves Catholics, he loves Protestants, he loves Jews, he loves Republicans, he loves Democrats, he loves those on the left, he loves those on the right, uh, atheists, those that are involved in witchcraft. Uh, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm convinced that uh, one of our callings is is to teach the Word of God and to do it in love and to let people know that God loves everybody, and yet we can't compromise the truth. We have to teach the truth. Paul said, speaking the truth in love, we have to tell it like it is according to what the Bible says. I'm almost done here. Uh, Revelation... Chapter 17, there's a verse that has really spoken to my heart. This whole chapter has spoken to my heart. It's, it's such a mighty chapter. It's so powerful. It's, uh, it's convicting. It's not, and, and God not only wants us to understand what this chapter is all about, but he wants us to understand how it ties in with world events today, and then he wants us to understand what it has to do with us, what it has to do with our own personal lives, our minds, and our hearts And I'll go more into that as we go along. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 17. At the end of verse 17, it says, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Uh, I've been through a a lot of trials in my life. In the last three or four years, I've had some major struggles. And I've learned through my struggles, through the trials that I've been through, uh, I've learned that my my hope and my strength and my life is the words of God, and this verse says that the words of God shall be fulfilled. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think I told you this, but uh, I'm also a graduate from uh, La Sierra College. I graduated from La Sierra in 1982, and I went to Andrew Seminary in 1983 uh, for two years, came out, and then I was a Pastor in San Francisco. Then I went to Weimar and taught uh, Academy Bible for three years. And then I went back to pastoring. Then I joined Amazing Facts. I was a full time evangelist for uh, six years. And now I'm the director of White Horse Media. And I've been through a lot of different things been, a lot of, been on the right, been on the left, been up, been down, been all around. And in all of my, uh, my experiences and my journey, I'm very thankful that God has taught me that in the midst of all the different things that are happening in the world and in the church and the different uh, currents that are blowing, the different ideas, the theologies, the philosophies, uh, the psychologies, all the different teachings that are around us, that there's nothing more important than for us to base our lives on the words of God. This verse says, that the words of God shall be fulfilled. And that's where my heart is. That's where our ministry is. That's what I want to teach is the word of the Lord. And Revelation chapter 17 Revelation chapter 17 makes it very very clear that there is a great whore that sits on many waters that has fallen away from Bible truth that has God's own people, many of them inside of her that need to come out, and that this great whore makes the whole world drunk with the wine or the false teachings of Babylon. And we need to be well aware of that uh, in these last days of Earth's history. We need to know what the prophecy says, and we need to apply it correctly in order to understand the times in which we live Uh, one, two more verses, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse nine, again, says, here is the mind, which has wisdom. Uh, There's actually two minds in chapter 17, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow. There's the mind that has wisdom in verse nine. And then verse 13 says about the 10 horns, these have one mind, and they will give their power and their strength to the beast. So there's a mind that has wisdom and there's a mind that goes along with the majority and eventually will support the beast, two minds. And when it, you know, to make it real practical into our personal lives, the only way that we're going to survive these final days and make it through what's coming and the only way we're going to understand what's really happening in this world, in America and in Europe and uh, all around this planet is if we have a mind that has wisdom. And and that mind is not a speculative mind. It's not a mind that just, you know, comes up with all of its own ideas. It's not a mind that, uh, you know, glories in its smartness or its brilliance or uh, even its its education or its uh, you know supposed knowledge. The mind that has wisdom is a mind that is willing to humbly surrender to God and to the power of his word and to the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, the mind, it's ultimately the mind of Christ and the mind of Jesus. When Jesus was in the wilderness fighting the devil, he said, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the mind of Christ. It's a mind that is is locked in to the word of God, to the words of God. And that is what we need. We need the mind that has wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit and the word of God to help us to understand what's happening in this world. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, he said, truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is. It's right there, right in front of our eyes. And and I'm convinced that if you look at all the clues of Revelation chapter 17, it's very clear who is the bloody woman, the mother of harlots that sits upon seven hills that makes the whole world drunk with her her wine. Uh, Last verse is verse 14. Verse 14. It's talking about the ten horns. It says, these shall make war. In the final days, they shall make war with the lamb. And the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Jesus is above the kings. He's above all the rulers, all the governors, all the, uh, the royalty and the authorities of this world. Jesus Christ is above them all. He is the Lord above the lords, and he's the king above the kings. And then at the end of verse 14, it says, and they that are with him. So this chapter not only talks about what's going on around us, but what needs to be going on inside of us We need to be with Jesus. It says, they that are with him are called, the Lord is calling us, and chosen. They have been chosen by God, and they are faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. That's the call of Revelation chapter 17. It's to have a mind with wisdom and to be loyal and faithful to the Lamb. Jesus Christ, who gave his life on the cross and who paid the price for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. So Revelation 17 is powerful. Hopefully you can see the power of this chapter. And the more you read this chapter, meditate on this chapter, study this chapter, it it will lift you up. It'll get you out of the wine of Babylon. If you have any of that wine in you, It will lock you in to the truth of God, to the words of God, to the wisdom of God. It will help you to see what's going on in the world. It will help you to see who the major players are. You'll be able to look at even at uh, the political world through the lens of Bible prophecy, and you will see how important it is. And in the midst of all this, that we are true followers of Jesus Christ, that we are on the side of the lamb, on the side of of our Savior who loves us, who died on the cross, who paid for all of our sins, and who has enough grace and enough love and enough power to get us through whatever comes in the days ahead. And I've learned that through my struggles. I've learned that Jesus is faithful, and whatever we go through, He will hold on to us if we trust Him and if we stay on His side. So tomorrow, we'll continue our study. Uh, this is just part one, identifying the bloody woman. Tomorrow, we'll identify uh, the seven-headed beast, and then we'll go on, and we'll look at what the Bible says about the seven kings, five are fallen. One is, and the other one is not yet come. What's that all about? And then who are the ten horns, and what is that final warfare about? So that's, uh, that's our lineup for the weekend. And I hope that you'll follow along carefully and that you'll be blessed and that as a result of all of this, you will be brought closer to Jesus Christ, your savior. So let's pray and, uh, and, and close. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be here on a Friday night on Zoom. And I'm trusting Lord that there are uh, people out there that are listening and, and hopefully receiving what the Holy Spirit has to say through your your book. And I just pray that you'll bless this entire weekend. Help us to uh, have minds that have wisdom and to follow the Lamb in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.